Hey, Gateway family, I hope you are doing well. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to go ahead and grab that. Uh, We are in Deuteronomy chapter 8. While you are looking there, uh, I want to bring you up to speed. Perhaps you're uh, a guest this morning, and if so, welcome. We're so glad that you are here with us as well. This is what we have been reviewing over the course of the last five weeks. Um, We are in a series where we are looking at Moses' life just before he dies. The people of Israel are in the wilderness, and they have been there for 39 years, 11 months, and a week. And so they are three weeks away from entering into the land of promise, just three weeks away from that dream becoming a reality. And this is Moses' last-ditch effort to communicate with God's people to hold fast to the promises of God to hold fast to everything that God has been doing, his faithfulness, his love, his covenant promises, for them to remember those things before they go in. Because truly, the only thing that is going to sustain Israel, the only thing that's going to sustain us in the midst of the mistakes of our past and in the midst of the fears of our future is God's faithfulness in our past and God's promises in our future. And so that's what we've been looking at. Every single week, it's kind of like turning a diamond, and we are seeing new facets and features of God's grace, his providence, his faithfulness in our lives. And in that way, when we see the character of God on display, it gives us a greater capacity to love and to serve him, to obey him, even when the going gets tough. And that's the question that I've been looking at every single week, and I want to share it with you once again this week. The the way to kind of frame this series is with this question. If you experience the grace of God, past tense, how should that affect the way that you live, present and future tense? And that's what the book of Deuteronomy does so well. So well. Every week we are seeing new elements of this on display. So, if you have ever had a wilderness moment in your life, If you've ever experienced loss, if you've ever experienced the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or unmet expectations, if you've ever had a parent discipline you, if you've ever had any wilderness moment, then Deuteronomy chapter 8 is going to help us wrestle well with those moments and how we can be carried through those moments. So if you got your Bible, let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 starting at verse 1. I want to read the first 14 chapters all together so that you can see the full frame of what we're going to be looking at today. Let's take a look at this. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Circle that. That's key. Whether or not you would keep his commandments, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience with him and reverence in him. 
For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and where you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. And when you have eaten and when you are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands and his laws and his decrees that I am giving you on this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large, and when your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then... Your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Thirty-nine years, eleven months, and one week in a barren wasteland, in a wilderness, in a desert. And in case you don't know, the book of Deuteronomy is mainly set near the Jordan River. And so on the one side, you have this barren desert wasteland. There is nothing there. It is uninhabitable. And then on the other side, you have what you might call a desert oasis in the midst of that barren land. And that is the land of promise that God has given them. It's modern day Israel and Jordan and Syria. But the people of Israel, for the last almost 40 years, they have been in this wilderness. You have to be thinking in your mind that uh, kind of the four S's, right? Scorpions, snakes, sun, and sadness. That kind of comprises of everything that they have been experiencing for the last 40 years. In fact, um, I was just reminded of this a couple weeks ago. Lord willing, if all the COVID stuff gets worked out, Julie and I are actually going to be going here in October. We were supposed to go last July, didn't work out, and originally the plan was that we were going to go right here. We got this picture? We were going to climb up all the way up the stairs of repentance and eventually get to Mount Sinai. And there, apparently, we were going to spend the night, and we were told ahead of time that it will be the best, worst sleep of your life, whatever that means. But because we're now going in October, they said it's far too cold, it gets below freezing, people could suffer exposure, and we we just don't want to have that, so we're not sleeping there. To my sadness and to Julie's secret delight that we're no longer doing that piece of the trip. But the thing that just finally hit me again is they were sharing with us over and over again, you must be prepared that it is in intensely hot during the day and intensely cold during the night. It is a place where people don't really want to live, and that's what we were going to experience. So it was a daily experience for Israel for 40 years, always too hot or too cold. There's nothing to eat, nothing but thorns and thistles and thirst, and that's where they live. But then verse 4 in your Bible makes a rather odd statement. Did you catch that? Look again in your Bible. Verse 4 says this, Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Why? Was it just that they had really good sewing, really good material? Why why was it that for 40 years, clothes 
did not wear out. Well, God explains that in verse 15. Take a look at this. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. So here's the principle that we learn in verse 15 and 16, not only for the people of Israel, but also in a very real spiritual sense for us today. This is what I put in your note sheet. I put it this way. We can't survive in the wilderness on our own. We can't survive there. Otherwise, we would die. But like I said, this story, it's not just for the original listeners. Otherwise, why would Moses write it down? Because he's audibly proclaiming this to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. No, this message is for us too. What they were literally experiencing in the wilderness is what we still experience today. In fact, the author of Hebrews says precisely that. I want to encourage you to to go with me. Put a tab in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and join me in Hebrews chapter 3. The best way to get there if you don't go to your table of contents or you're not going on your iPhone, is go to the very back of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and then start turning to the left, and you're going to pass Jude and 1, 2, 3, John, and 1, 2, Peter, and James, and then you'll get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, and it says something fascinating. So this whole chapter is highlighting what can happen if if we choose unbelief in God, if we turn away from God, and he wants us to cling to God. Verse 12 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Then verse 16, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if to those who disobeyed? So what we have to see here, what's being highlighted, is that the assumption is that even though Israel experienced a literal desert, a literal wilderness, the spiritual reality of our lives is that we're there too. Every single human being is in the wilderness. We're in a desert wilderness. And on account of our sin nature, the traitor within, we have been separated from God. We're no longer in the garden like Adam and Eve were, experiencing union with God. They've been sent out into the wilderness. And that's our life too, in a deeply spiritual sense. We are in the wilderness and we can't survive on our own. That's actually what the Hebrew word for wilderness means. Wilderness actually means this, on an uninhabitable place. You can't live in it. Otherwise, it'll kill you. You'll die. You have scorpions and snakes and the sun and exposure or lack of water or lack of food. There's plenty of different ways to die in the wilderness. And so, we will die unless we get some sort of miraculous divine help. We can't survive in the wilderness on our own because we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. So that's the point. Israel's literal experience in the wilderness 
is our experience in a spiritual sense today. That's what Hebrews 3 is saying. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 is reminding us that there's plenty of different ways for us to die in the wilderness. We, ex- we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. One of the ways that we can be separated from God, one of the ways that we can experience the wilderness is through idolatry. What is idolatry? This is the definition that I have given you a number of times. If you are a member of Gateway, you know this. Idolatry is simply taking a good thing making it a God thing, and on account of that, it becomes a deeply terrible thing. See, oftentimes, we think about disobedience as sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Like, we're, we're just going to go do these evil things that are going to sh- destroy our lives. But idolatry is simply this, taking something that's inherently good, that God has made, and rejoicing in it so fully, putting your joy in it so fully that it becomes a broken and tainted thing, like our family, Our spouse, our kids, our work, our RSPs, the pleasure that we have, our career, our clout, any of these things that are inherently good things, but when you make them ultimate things, when you place your joy and satisfaction in these things, they begin to break down. And then not only that, we can also experience perhaps secondhand, not even of our own doing, very difficult things in our life. Suffering, loss, betrayal, dying, death. See, the issue with our sin nature is we're not the only ones who have it. And so even though we have the capacity to destroy ourselves, Scripture says that all of creation groans, like a mother in childbirth, until the day of the Lord when he comes back again. The, the entire world is a barren wasteland. That's the language of Scripture. And so not only that, we see that all around us we are experiencing the wilderness. But here's the second point, and it's a little bit of a head-scratcher because it sounds like the opposite of what I've just been saying. But not only is it that we can't survive in the wilderness on our own, but also we can't survive without the wilderness. We can't survive without it. Look again at verse 2. I find this so fascinating. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says this, remember how the Lord your God led you, hear that, he led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart. So the Lord brought them there. It's not that the Lord went with them, Scripture says that the Lord led them. He was the one who brought them into the wilderness. Now, why? Why would God do that? Why would God put them in harm's way like that? Because it's actually kind of strange when you think about it. Throughout all of Scripture, you see numerous instances in which people encounter God in the wilderness. Let me just give you a couple examples of these. I'm not going to do an exhausted list, but just a few. Adam and Eve. They were clothed by God when they were leaving the Garden of Eden, and then they went out into the wilderness. Jacob, he has both of his encounters with God, the stairway to heaven and the literal grappling with God in the wilderness. Moses, he experiences God in the form of a burning bush and on Mount Sinai, both in the wilderness. Hagar meets God in the wilderness. 
Elijah meets God in the wilderness. The people of Israel receive the law from God in the wilderness. John the Baptist, his entire ministry is in the wilderness. And Jesus, after being baptized by John the Baptist, he goes out into the wilderness. After being baptized in the Jordan, he goes into the exact same place where Israel is right now in Deuteronomy chapter 8. They've been there for 40 years. Jesus goes there for 40 days. Got to catch the symbolism. See, the wilderness is the place throughout Scripture where people encounter God. So while the wilderness is literally a place that can destroy us, it's also the place where we meet God. So then we ask ourselves this question, why can't we survive without the wilderness? And the answer that I put in your note sheet, the answer according to Scripture is this, because otherwise we will destroy ourselves. We'll destroy ourselves. Say, Justin, what do you mean? What do you mean we'll destroy ourselves? Well, let me give you an example of this. First starting off with kind of a a fictional example and then talking a little bit more about real life. So to give you more of a, a fictional story, what do all superheroes, pretty much all superheroes and famous characters have in common? Almost all of them are orphans or have been taken away from their biological parents. Isn't that interesting? Let me just give you a couple of them. We have um, Batman. Both of his parents were killed and he's raised by his butler. Spider-Man. His parents were killed. He's raised by his his uncle, but his uncle also dies. Spider-Man. Taken from the land of Krypton and raised by different parents. Wonder Woman. The Hulk. Frodo. Luke Skywalker. Until later. Spoiler alert. Tom Sawyer, Tarzan, Oliver Twist, Harry Potter, Cinderella, all the Anns, Anne of Green Gables, Anne Shirley, Little Orphan Annie, even Kung Fu Panda, all of them have the same thing in common. When you think about it, there's just so many characters that have the same type of experiences, and they're all our favorite characters. They're all our favorites. They all change the world. And we even see this um, in the Bible as well. What do all these characters have in common? Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Samuel, Esther, what do they all have in common? All of them were either orphans or were raised not by their biological parents. And here's what's so ironic about this. Pretty much every parent in the world wants their kids to be destined for great things, right? We all want our kids to just do amazing things. And yet, most of us as parents, if we're honest with ourselves, what do we want to do to our kids? We want to bubble wrap them. We want to make sure that they never get hurt and they never experience any wilderness moments. We want to make sure that they're always secure and well taken care of. And yet, what do we know? We know that oftentimes that what is needed, even for our children, as painful as it is for us to say this, is for them to experience some wilderness moments. Because people who have really easy lives are often, not always, are often very shallow. They don't know their own hearts. They have no grit. They have no self-determination. And that's, that's kind of what comes with it. So what is it that makes people filled with character? It's people who are good, people who are great. Wilderness training. Wilderness training. That's what helps them grow. And then you study biographies of world historical figures, people who have helped shape the world as it is today. And you see, once again, a lot of them, not necessarily orphans, but have experienced a wide plethora of very difficult experiences in their childhood or in their youth or in their early adolescence leading into their adulthood. And oftentimes, those experiences help shape them so that they can grow. 
And that's just, that's just on a human level, right? You can see that people who have wilderness experiences are often the same people who are destined for great things. So you say, Justin, why does this matter? Like, as parents, do we say, I want to help my child grow? You know, I've got to die sometime this year. No, that, that's not what we're talking about. But here's the point. We see that the same thing is true on a spiritual level. I can tell you as a pastor that gone are the days where people are going to come to our church just by happenstance, like I drove by, just decided to check it out. Those days are no longer here. Almost always, without fail, there's only two ways that people are coming to church. The first is that they're invited by a friend, by you. But the second way is that they have a wilderness moment with God. They might come here, I'll come up to them, and I'll say, hey, what brings you to Gateway? And they'll say, I haven't been to church in decades but I recently lost my spouse. I recently lost my job. I recently had a wilderness moment. What are they saying? They're saying, I encountered Jesus in the wilderness, and he brought me back. He brought me back. So let me tell you something you might already know, and and this might sting for some of us, because this is going to require some searching in our own hearts. It's going to require some, some introspection, But I want to share with you that the biggest enemy of the church today is not what you often see on Facebook. It's not the political left or the political right. It's not some social movement. It's not the loss of our charter of rights and freedoms. Um, It's not uh, a human sexuality topic. It's not a civil rights movement. It's not anything like that. The one thing that has the capacity to cause the greatest harm And be the greatest enemy of the church today is this one thing, the apathy and the complacency of God's people. That's the one thing that has the greatest capacity to cause harm to the church today. And apathy seems to be only a word that happens outside of the wilderness. Let me show this to you again. If you got your Bible, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 10. I find this so fascinating. And this is written by Moses, inspired by God, and God has already communicated to Moses that he knows ahead of time that the people of Israel will be faithful, they will go into the land of promise, but once they get there, they will become unfaithful and they will forget God. Imagine knowing those things before they happen. And so he writes this in verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Just see him pleading with them. Don't forget. Failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses, when you settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large, when your silver and gold increase and all you have multiplied, Here's what's going to happen. Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You'll forget. See, that's why Jesus can say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life. It's the same reason why Christians in the East, when they hear Christians in the West saying, I'm going to pray for you that persecution will cease so that you can worship in freedom like we do. They often say, why would you do that? Why would you pray that prayer? Don't you see 
the wilderness is the fertile soil that has led to a greater gospel kingdom movement in the world than the Western world has ever seen or experienced. More people are coming to know Jesus than ever before. Don't you see? It's the wilderness where we encounter God. And it's in those moments where finally we, we reach the pinnacle, we reach the garden, we reach the oasis, the promised land, and what do we do? We fall into complacency. We become proud. We forget about God. We turn away. And so that's the reason why we can say we can't survive in the wilderness. We can't survive without the wilderness. We need both. Because in the wilderness, we encounter God. We see it in our text. The people of Israel, they're finally delivered out of bondage, out of slavery, and then God brings them into the physical wilderness. He puts them in an environment filled with human suffering. Why? Why would he do that? Why, why would God be so cruel? Because otherwise, an even worse wilderness will come over them. Otherwise, they will destroy themselves. And you might say, Justin, how do you know that? How, how do you know what, what decision they'll make if they just enter into the land of promise? Well, let me ask you this. How did we get here to Deuteronomy chapter 8? God delivers them from the land of Egypt out of slavery. They go to the land of promise. And then what happens? We learned about this in Deuteronomy chapter 1. They see fortified walls. They see literal giants. They see huge armies. And what do they say? They say, let's go back to Egypt. They literally say, let's go back to our chains. It would be better for us to go back to our chains in Egypt than for us to take this land that God has delivered to us. See, God has taken them out of slavery, but the slavery hasn't been taken out of them. And so they get 40 years of wilderness training to figure it out. And maybe, just maybe, that's you this morning. Maybe, just maybe, you've been a follower of Jesus. You've been following him for, for years maybe months, maybe decades. And you know that in your own life, is everything all better? No, of course not. Is your life perfect? No, of course not. Are you growing in sanctified living? Yes, you are. You're, you're growing in the image of Jesus day by day. But some of those issues that you've been dealing with even before you became a Christian, they're all still there. All of them are still there. You still have problems with commitment, problems with lust, Problems with sin and, and pride and arrogance and bitterness. All those things are still inside of you. And you're growing, but the problems aren't fully over either. And maybe, just maybe, you've recently experienced a wilderness moment. Maybe, just maybe, you're in that place right now. And as a pastor, I can tell you, so many times I've already experienced this, that when Christians encounter wilderness moments— Oftentimes, two things happen simultaneously. The first thing that happens is you're surprised by just how angry at God you've become. It shocks you. And maybe, just maybe, you, you begin to realize that you've invested so much joy, you've derived so much of your satisfaction into this one thing, that the prospect of losing it has caused you to question the motives of God. It has made you angry with God. But at exactly the same time, here's what often happens. Wilderness training begins to come into place. You start to pray a little bit more. You start to read your Bible a little bit more fervently. 
You take the sacraments more. You worship more. You ask for help more. You seek out love more. You give love more. You spend more time on your knees. All of these things happen because I like to think of it this way. I often say it's easier to pray when you're already on your knees. Isn't that the case? It's always easier to pray when you're already on your knees. That's what the wilderness does. It humbles us in ways we wouldn't otherwise be humbled. And we see this reflected in the Old Testament. It is a somewhat humorous, but deeply painful and sad centrifugal story. It goes a little bit like this. The people of Israel are brought out of their bondage and into the land of promise. In the land of promise, they forget the faithfulness of God and they are sent into exile. And once they are in exile, they humble their hearts. And once they are humble and contrite and they realize the error of their ways, they turn back to God. And on account of that, they go back into the land of promise. But then once they're in the land of promise, do you know what they do? They forget the faithfulness of God and then they go back out into exile over and over and over and over and over again. It's the entire Old Testament in a nutshell. Different characters, same story. And that's our heart too. It happens exactly the same way. And that's why God says what he says in verse 5. And this is, it's so important for us to understand. Verse 5 says this. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Know in your heart kind of a a weird way of saying it, isn't it? It's kind of a way of saying Israel knows, but they don't really know. It, It hasn't really sunk deep into their heart for them to truly know the faithfulness of God in the midst of the wilderness moments that they're currently experiencing. It's kind of like when when parents discipline and disciple their children. I want to propose to you, if you're doing it right, there should be moments in your life as you discipline your kids where you're, you're holding back tears in your eyes because there's a part of you that says, I don't want to do anything to cause harm to my child, but I know that they need this discipline so that they can learn and grow. And there might even be times as your kids get older, I don't have teenage kids, but I've been told this, there's moments where they go from thinking that you are the best person in the world to thinking you are like the worst and they start to hate you for it on account of the way that you are disciplining them? And maybe, just maybe, you want to say something like this. My child, I want to save you from an eternity of wilderness, an eternity of wilderness by just giving you a moment of it. Just a moment. In the context of COVID-19, I was was thinking it's it's kind of like a vaccine and how vaccines work. You give them just a a tiny little sliver of the virus so that your body can build up the antibodies so that when the real virus comes, you're protected, you're immune. What do we do as we discipline our kids? We give them just enough of that virus, just enough of that wilderness for them to realize that if I continue on this path, it will destroy my life. And so you do it in a loving way to bring them back. So, a question that we can ask ourselves is, is, if we can't live in the wilderness and we can't live without the wilderness, then what do we do? What do we do? Well, I want to propose this to you. 
we have one hope. We have one hope. And we see it again crystal clear in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to what? To test you in order to know what is in your heart. See, whenever we see this word test, what do we think about? We often think about those pass-fail things that we take in school, right? That's what a test is. When you really think about it, a test is meant to determine who is weak and who is strong, to sift out those who are prepared from those who are not yet prepared. So it's the reason why you take tests in order to get into grad school or to pass the bar or to be a part of the association. They're trying to wean out the people who are ill-equipped so that you never have open-heart surgery from a doctor who doesn't know what they're doing. Or you never have a real estate agent trying to help you buy a house who has, knows nothing about the real estate market. Or to have an attorney represent you who knows nothing about the legal system. And so they, there's these certain bars that they have to achieve. And only after they achieve that bar can they enter in. Otherwise, they're not accepted. But the opposite is true of this text. That's not what's happening here. See, parents, when, when you see a deficiency in your child, maybe a, a lack of discipline, or a lack of knowledge, or a lack of wisdom, or a, a lack of integrity, then what do you do? Do you give up on them? Do you say, oh, they're weaned out. At least I got the other two kids. They're doing fine. This one, you know, you're no more. No. If anything, you decide, I need to give more focused time and attention on this child to help them learn and grow, to help them develop in those deficiencies. You might hire a tutor, you might take away privileges, you might give them a time out, you might send them to their room. You might do a combination of things in order to help them get back on track. See, here's the difference. Tests for us as parents are never used to wean out the weak from the strong. It's never used in a vengeful way. No, you bring just enough pain, and it has to be just enough, in order to help bring them back to the straight and narrow. That's what discipline is. And that's how we help our children. So oddly enough, tests in the world are a requirement for love and acceptance. You've passed the bar, now you may come into the association. But the opposite is true as a parent. We say, regardless of what you do, I'm going to put my love on you. And if you fail, I'm going to give you more time and attention to help you succeed. And God the Father wants us to see that picture even more. He says, you as imperfect parents, if you do that already, what do you think I'm going to do as a perfect Heavenly Father for you? That's what God wants to do for us. Let me give you uh, one practical example. Let's suppose for a moment that you have, I don't know, 100 children. That's a lot let's just say for the sake of the analogy, you have 100 kids, and 99 of those 100 kids are just very well-behaved, very knowledgeable, very respectful and humble, and they do all the things right, and you're very proud of your parenting on account of these 99 very well-balanced children. But let's say you have one who is wicked, who has done despicable things, hurtful things. Let's say that you have one child who's run off, do you as a parent say, 1% attrition rate, not so bad, and forget about the one kid and focus on the 99? Of course not. 
If anything, your love is intensified for that one child who's run off, right? That's exactly the same way with God. You might even know of a parable that's very similar to this one. It's why Jesus says what he says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, when he says this, I tell you that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, that's the heart of God. He says, I don't just want to give you a wilderness moment for the sake of it, but I want to give you just enough of the wilderness so that you can be saved from an eternity of wilderness. It's because I love you. So then you might ask yourself, Justin, are you saying that if, you know, if we need to have these wilderness moments in order to keep our heart humble, do we have to kind of be like the monks in the 11th century who uh, committed self-flagellation? Have you heard about this? They would take whips and they would whip their back bloody in order to try to abide by the principle of Deuteronomy chapter 8 so that they could keep their hearts humble and not proud and so that they could remain focused on God. Do we need to do that? No. That's not what I'm saying because here's a central point that we all need to understand. You are not the one hope that you need. You are not the hope that you need. You need someone else. You can't carry yourself. And so we have one hope and it is this, to be carried through the wilderness. We have to be carried through the wilderness. That's how the book of Deuteronomy starts. Deuteronomy 1 verse 31, while in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. See, you have to know that you have a loving father who wants to carry you through the wilderness. And then you might say, Justin, that all sounds great. It sounds good. And maybe even intellectually I understand why I need to have wilderness moments in my life to keep my heart humble and focused on God. But in those wilderness moments, it's hard to see that. Because more times than not, when I experience those wilderness moments in my life, I ask myself, God, how could you allow something like this to happen? How can I have the eyes to see that God is doing something far greater than what my eyes can see? How can I have this this mind over matter experience and know deep in my heart to truly know that God is being loving even while I'm in the wilderness? How can I know that, Justin? Here's what I want to propose to you. You have to see your carrier. The only way you're going to be able to get through that wilderness is if you have a vision of the carrier who's leading you through the wilderness. See, years later, Jesus went out and he was baptized by John the Baptist in none other than the Jordan River. And immediately after being baptized, the clouds opened up and God the Father said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus went where? He went out into the wilderness. At exactly the same time, God the Father says, this is my son whom I love and go out into the wilderness. He says both. And he's there for 40 days. You see the symbolism, Deuteronomy 8. And what we see in the the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John is exactly the same thing. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? Have you ever asked that before? Why did he go there? 
He went there for you. He went there for you. See, that's what we have to see if we're going to understand the love of God. We have to see that Jesus, he can't just be your example. He can't be your coach. He can't be your mentor. He can't be your guide. He can't just be your friend or your colleague or your business partner. What you have to see is that Jesus is nothing other than your Savior who carries you through the wilderness. That's the vision that we have to have. And then when he gets to the cross, what happened to Jesus? Speaking of thorns and thistles and thirst and desert-like things, we see that on the cross, Jesus is given a crown of thorns. We see that on the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst. And speaking of the wilderness moment, we see that on the cross, Jesus experienced the only true agony that we could ever face when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see that's the only wilderness that matters? When it comes down to brass tacks, what is the difference between heaven and hell? The fundamental difference is that God won't be there. He'll turn his face away. That's the fundamental difference. And Jesus doesn't want you to ever experience such agony and such pain. And so he provides a way for you and for me to carry us through that wilderness so that we won't ever experience it. That's the only way that you'll be able to trust God in the midst of those wilderness moments. Because your heart is always going to want to tell you, God doesn't love me. Otherwise, why would he allow these things to happen in my life? Why would he allow that person to die in my life? Why would he take this away? Why would he allow me to experience this kind of betrayal? Why? And it's only when we have a vision of Jesus on the cross, dying for you and for me, that we can gather the perspective we need to truly know that God is trustworthy. He's loving He's forgiven my past and he's trustworthy for my future. We have to have that vision in our mind. Only then can you give the trust you need so that you can say exactly the same thing that we see in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when Moses says, Man does not live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And you know the only other place in Scripture where that verse is cited, it's on day 40 of Jesus' wilderness journey in exactly the same place when Satan comes to tempt him to despair and to turn away and to not go to the cross. Jesus remarks with these words to Satan and then he goes to the cross. We have to have that vision in our mind of minds. And if you're in a wilderness right now, I want to I end this morning with a quote from pastor and author Timothy Keller. I think this helps us gather a perspective on how to suffer well in the midst of our wilderness moments. And he says this, joy in Christ doesn't actually go away when our circumstances go bad because joy in Christ is based on what he has done before. It's already done. It's actually only when circumstances go back that you connect to what he has done. He continues, therefore, joy in Christ is sort of like a furnace with a thermostat. 
the colder it gets outside, the worse things get in your life, the more it kicks on, and the hotter your hope gets. People, put your trust in God. He will carry you through. Focus on the providence and the plan and the faithfulness of God. Like the examples that we already heard of this morning from Elise and Shania and Mike echoing all the same stories that the people of Israel have experienced in the faithfulness of God that these three have experienced and that we have all experienced too. Put your trust in him and he will see you through. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, create the circumstances in my life to draw me closer to you. And like Sophie started off this morning with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, with this vision from Paul talking about these light momentary afflictions that we face, but that we have the hope of glory before us. Help us to have that same vision in our minds in the midst of the suffering that we face. And Lord, it is our desire that you would help give us enough tears to keep us tender, enough hurts to keep us humane, enough of failure to keep our hands clenched tightly to yours, and even enough success to make sure that we know that we walk with you. Lord, create the circumstances in our life to help us draw near to you, to fall down on our knees in humility and repentance, and to turn to you for trust. We ask all this of you, and we know that you will see us through because you promised that you would. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen.